Well, this is lesson number three on courtship and engagement, and we've entitled this one Divine Timing, Pursuing and Accountability. And uh, as I'm writing these lessons, I'm realizing five lessons on this is just, is just going to be scratching the surface because we're dealing with something as massive as marriage. Just like telling somebody how to get born again is just the beginning of a Christian walk. And so you can't ever do it justice. You get born again, and then you spend the rest of your life learning what happened the day you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. And we can teach these, these principles and these concepts on courtship and engagement, but really there's going to be so many subcategories and caveats and subconditions about what goes on in marriage. These are really just meant to be good general rules, good general philosophy, principles of wisdom. And a lot of it's written for the Western culture. This honestly may not transcribe well over to other cultures because of how they do things. And to give my honest judgment, I think other cultures other than the West do courtship a lot better than we do. I'm not for arranged marriages, but uh, we're going to cover engagement rings and dowries in the next lesson. We don't really do that in America. We we do a ring, and that's kind of our engagement ring, our, our dowry. But overseas, it might be a pack of cows. And it goes to everybody in the family. Dowries are very biblical. And everybody in the family got a dowry when you wanted that woman really bad. Nowadays, you know, you can fall in love with her at a bar and have an Elvis impersonator marry you the next day at courthouse. And that's how America has cheapened marriage so much. So we'll cover that in the next few lessons. But let's look at this. We have a lot to cover here. But please keep in mind, these are general rules. These are general concepts. We don't want to get too legalistic on any of them, but we want to find the heart behind the generality here that'll keep us safe. So the purpose behind these teachings is to develop and present a safe and honorable pattern, not a hard, fast rule, but a pattern for modern Christians, and that's another key word, modern Christians, to follow as they cautiously journey down the tricky road of love and marriage. I was talking to Dr. Barclay a while back about some of these issues, and and I said, Pastor, it's just, these young folks, they're just crazy. I said, I'm doing my best to try to keep them on the straight and narrow. And I said, you know, it was crazy 10 years ago when I got engaged and married. And he said, he said, whoa, he said, it's crazier now, son. He said, these young folks are crazier now than they've ever been. And he said, they need more help than they've ever needed because of the end of all things and the sin that's propagating. And the body of Christ, the kingdom is falling apart. It suffers violence from the outside and culture as a whole is deteriorating. So we're, we're having to put more word in people to keep them safe. And if you understand, the average Christian only spends about two hours a week in church and six hours a day on Facebook and social media. My average Christian is not a disciple of Christ anymore. They're a disciple of the culture. And so what we have to do is make sure we put forth these role models, these patterns, these models, so Christians can begin to bump together and find the will of God. So let's look at this final hurdle of wisdom, our next little section here. We have previously looked at the necessity of controlling your heart. That was our first lesson. And watching out for potential uneven yokes. That was our second lesson. Watching your heart, controlling who you fall in love with, and then looking through the dating and courtship process for uneven yokes, what is often called red flags or deal breakers. There ought to be deal breakers. There ought to be a a red line where you say, if this happens, I'm done. Oftentimes, though, when you fall in love, something happens and you, you let that threshold be walked over. How could I walk away now? He only hit me once. Well, man, abuse in a relationship, that's a deal breaker. You let me know, I'll hit them back for you. I'll hit, plus interest. 
Not just one eye, both of them and a nose. I'm teaching Lydia how to punch. And, I'm, I'm, and she knows, we got strict rules. Only if they won't leave you alone, only if there's no adult, only if they're being mean. And where do we hit Lydia? We punch in the nose or the stomach, Daddy. That's right, nose or stomach, because that'll drop anybody. I haven't taught her how to punch in the throat yet, because that can kill people. Nose and stomach, a little bit of blood, a little bit of throw up, they'll leave you alone. If somebody hits you, that's a deal breaker. If somebody insults you or if verbally abuses you, deal breaker. Too many Christians don't have deal breakers because love. Well, they'll change. Please, please don't. Just, just don't. Just have a, have a perimeter. Have a, a threshold. There's one final hurdle of wisdom that must be considered before a potential courting relationship should move forward, and that is proper timing. And we, we are calling this courtship relationship or courting relationship. We've, we've split hairs uh, in our previous singlehood lessons on dating versus courtship. Courtship includes dating, but we live in a generation where people just date the field. They just date everybody. They can be dating five women at once. We are totally against that. We have the strict discipline and, and, and philosophy that you only begin to date or court when you're ready to get married. If you're not ready for marriage, you shouldn't even be looking. But we have to discover the proper timing. And so we also have a, uh, a whole set of lessons on staying current with the Holy Spirit where we talk about seasons of life. We want to make sure we're in the proper timing of God before we begin courting and, and looking at marriage. Every Christian has different seasons. And if we're not careful, we start looking to the left hand and to the right to see what our friends are doing. And social media has made this even worse because we're following all of our friends from high school and college and we're watching their life advance while it feels like our life is going nowhere. And then you start to experience what psychologists called FOMO or fear of missing out. Well, FOMO is something the Bible forbids. When you compare yourselves among yourselves, you are unwise, Corinthians says. That's FOMO, fear of missing out. That's why I, I, social media really is just an adult middle school, in my opinion. Very few folks actually use it for the tool it could be. You need to make sure that you can discern the time and the season that you're in. One of the things I, I noticed, and I, I, it came to my mind as we were writing these lessons, one of the things we pray almost every night of the week over our girls is that we pray that their husbands are holy men of God that come along in the right season. I pray that every night. I didn't even realize I was doing it. Because I don't want him to come along in high school. I don't want him to be, be revealed in college. I want it to be in God's season. And as you study the Bible, you see, and we'll look at it here in a second, that the authorities recognized when it was time for the son to get married. They didn't determine it themselves. It, it was a supernatural season where they said, I, I think it's time. We, as Americans, we get married when we want to. And we get divorced when we want to. And we do what we want to because you know what? We're independent. Our national DNA is independence. And really what we do is we celebrate Independence Day and the other 364 days of the year, we celebrate Independence Day. And what we should be doing for 365 days of the year is celebrating dependence on Jesus Christ Day rather than determining what we're going to do with our life when we want to, as we want to, how we want to. And so this even bleeds over into our marriages and our weddings and our courtships. So Song of Solomon 2.7 in the NIV says, Awaken not love before the time, which indicates there is a time when love can be awakened, and before that it's illegal. 
That comes back to the first lesson of controlling your love. The New Century translation says, Not to awaken or excite my feelings of love until it is ready. Again, indicating a time and a season. You know, one of the reasons we're against dating in high school is that they're not mature enough to get to class on time. They're not mature enough to turn in their vocabulary homework on time. They're not mature enough to bring home the permission slip for mommy or daddy. How in the world are they mature enough to have a loving, emotional relationship for someone of the opposite sex? They are not. That's the heart behind why, sweetie, we don't date until we're probably 20, 24, 28, 37. Because you can't even handle yourself. Your heart's not mature enough to handle it. Plus, it'll distract you from all the other relationships you're still immature in. Amen. Proverbs 19.2 says, Also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And he that hasteth with his feet sinneth. So there again, there's getting in a hurry. That's one of my favorite verses. Violating that verse cost me a lot the first 10 years of my Christian walk. And the older I get, the slower I move and the more it frustrates people. Well, just because you're frustrated doesn't mean I'm wrong. Frustration indicates a lack of the grace of God. I'm pretty happy moseying on along, especially when my name has to be signed to all these big money projects we do. I'm going to take my time, make sure God is saying, all right, son. Go sign your name. I will back you up. Are you sure, Dad? You sure, Father? Do it. All right. We get in such a hurry because we're impatient, because we lack fruit of the Spirit, because we lack a spiritual foundation. And so we think marriage is is the solution to our inadequacies. And that's going to cause failure and blowout every time. Ecclesiastes 3.1, To everything there is a season, unique word in the Hebrew, an appointed time. Everything has an appointed time. That includes the season of falling in love, courting, engagement, and marriage. To everything, there's an appointed time. Appointed by who? God. And you can go ahead and jumpstart that if you want, but it won't be God. And a time to every purpose. The word purpose is also a delight. There's a a time to every delight under heaven. Love is a delight. Engagement is a delight. Courting is a delight. Dating is a delight. But there's a time and a season appointed by God for all of that. We as American Christians, we have lost the art of being a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ and a slave. Perhaps our counterculture against slavery, slavery which was wicked in this nation, we don't mean to diminish that, we're afraid to recognize that the Bible calls us slaves. And when you're a slave, you do what the Lord tells you to do when he tells you to do it. You don't have your own plan or will. You say, Lord, I'd like to. Is it okay? Do, do I have permission? It seems to me, Lord, like this season is resting upon me. A- am I accurate in that, Lord? Because the last thing you want to do is fall in love when it's not the season. Just like the last thing you want to do is start a church when it's not the season. Just like the last thing you want to do is start a business when it's not the season. Just like the last thing you want to do is go be a missionary when it's not the season because you'll ruin everything and it could almost kill you. Look at 2 Kings 5.26. It be the words of Elisha to Gehazi. Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? Notice there's nothing wrong with receiving any of those if they're gifted to you. But the prophet was trying to teach Gehazi too late apparently that there's a proper time and an improper time. And there's nothing wrong wrong with receiving gifts. But he's indicating, Gehazi, you should have been a lot more spiritual than this. And because Gehazi went on to choose to receive gifts out of proper season, 
it was counted as sin. And leprosy came upon him just for receiving gifts. You can get married, you can court, you can fall in love and it totally be the wrong season and it'd be sin. Though love is the will of God, courting is the will of God, marriage is the will of God. You have to be mature enough to discern these things. And in, in most cultures, those that are falling in love, or those who are getting ready to be married, are the immature segment of society. And that's why you need help. That's why you need oversight. That's why in most cultures around the world, the entire family and the chief and the village council is involved in helping the marriage come to pass. Dr. Miklos was sharing with me that the church culture in the Ukraine is that when two Christian lovers fall in love, they immediately go to their parents and their pastors. And the parents and the pastors come together and they have a powwow and they judge the lovers. And they judge, is this going to be a good fit? How, how is, you know, and they, they come together and interrogate the two and they give permission whether they can fall in love or not. And that's how they keep the church safe in the Ukraine. And I, he was telling me that when we were in Kenya. And I said, I, I really like that. You know, that, that is so foreign to the American who is who has the mindset, who are you to tell me what to do? This is my life. This is my body. I can murder babies if I want. I can sleep around if I want. My body has rights that you don't even know of. And you have the right to go to hell if you want. We've lost the whole art of submission to the will of God and godly leadership. God is not against us receiving any kind of clean and proper gift, but according to the words of the prophet Elisha, timing is critical. Gehazi got the timing wrong and it caused leprosy to come upon him. So let us ask the question, is it time to get married? And so I have this very important quote that I've quoted for years and years and years now. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. I can take it even more simply. Even if I have a beautiful message from the Holy Ghost... If it's not the time to give it in a service, I'll grieve the Spirit of God, though I'm teaching the Bible. And that may blow some people's minds, but it just indicates their lack of spirituality in that arena. If God is saying salvation and repentance of sin, and I preach healing, I'll miss God and grieve the Spirit of God. If God is saying forgiveness is the message of today, teach people how to forgive, and I decide to teach on world missions, I will totally miss God, and I'll grieve God. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. Everything has to be right for it to be the will of God. The right thing, the right time equals the will of God. You get anything wrong, the right time, but the wrong thing, wrong thing. Proper timing isn't based on your neediness. I'm just so needy. I've had a lot of folks tell me, I'm just so lonely, pastor. All right, well, go pray. That's how you fix loneliness. Timing is not based on sexual lust or insecurities. If you get married with any of these in your life, you're a mess, and the marriage is automatically tainted. Proper timing is different for each believer, and that's why there's no hard, fast rule. If you start trying to keep up with your college friends or your high school friends and pattern your life after what they're doing, you'll totally miss God. In fact, to do so is to not walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a different and distinct walk for every person. You don't let culture determine that. You let the will of God from the throne of heaven determine that. And he may not have you get married till you're 35. God forbid. At the same time, you don't want to get married six times between now and 35. Amen. 
So you want to make sure you walk with Jesus Christ and you turn not to the left hand or to the right. And these things are hard for our culture to hear, but just because it's American doesn't make it holy, right, or biblical. We evolve these things constantly. I mean, right now, one of the biggest things to do is to meet on a Christian dating site. I am against that. But I know I have friends. I've got folks even in this church that have met on Christian dating sites. I don't teach that. But maybe God had mercy and some ignorance. And both of them that I know of, they're a couple of couples. They're in a great marriage now. I think it's the will of God having mercy on sheer ignorance. But I have to put that out there so that we don't think God needs help through ChristianMingle.com. Because God doesn't need help on ChristianMingle.com. Because how many folks are trolling on ChristianMingle.com? There might be an exception, but we don't make rules out of the rare exception. There are no scriptures indicating when it is time for a believer to pursue court and wed. No scriptures at all. So we have to be led by God on this. This is something only the Holy Spirit can pinpoint. However, there are a few natural maturity questions that can be used to help narrow down when that time might be upon you. So I just kind of throw some questions out there. No particular order, but are you content single? If you're not content single, when will you get there? And if you're not content single, you don't need to get married. Because the driving force behind that marriage is discontentment. And if you're discontent single, you'll be discontent married. Because wherever you go, there you are. And in all your problems, you're the only stable variable or unstable variable. How about, um, are you doing all you can do as a single person for the Lord? Single people ought to be doing more for God than anybody else. Single people ought to be up here every day after work doing something for God. Single people should have been the number one leaders of our last remodeling project. Because they don't have a wife to go home to or a husband to go to. They don't have children to take care of. There's no pick up and drop off at school or band practice or soccer. Single people can do a lot because they're single. If no, when will you begin to be a living sacrifice? Now, the thing we teach in singlehood one is you don't, biblically, you don't need a spouse until you've you're maximized everything you're doing for God. And now you're saying, Lord, I could do more for you if I was married. That is the biblical reason to get married because you need help doing more for God. You can disagree with that statement all you want, but you don't have an ounce of Bible to disagree with it. When you look at Adam and Eve, Adam was so busy for God, naming the animals, tending the garden. He was looking at two by two animals and the she-bear and the he-bear and the she-goat and the he-goat. And then he began to realize, "I, I need something. And God said, it's not good that you're alone. You're lustful. I'll make you a sex doll. You're lonely. I'll make you somebody who you can drag down to the bottom of loneliness with. He said, no. It's not good that you be alone. You need help. What was he helping? What did he need help with? Serving God. Most Christians in this culture, I'd say 98% of them get married for the wrong reasons. And God has mercy. But the biblical precedent in the book of Genesis is you get married not because you're lustful, not because you're needy, not because you're lonely, but because it's time to get help serving God. And any other reason than that is going to have some funky juju going on and it's going to bump around in the dark. Awfully quiet on that, but I'm right. You don't have scripture to disagree with me. All you have is culture. And Titus authorizes me to destroy culture. And I enjoy doing it. Are you 
stable mentally, emotionally, and financially? No. When will this work be complete? If you're not stable mentally, if you're not stable emotionally, if you're not stable financially, you don't need to get married. No, you don't need to get married. You, you don't need to get married. You, you, you just need to get with Jesus and get a job. Are you submissive and sacrificial? No. When will this be developed? When you get married, it's all about sacrifice. You start dying on a regular basis that you might prefer your spouse. See, these are the questions we're asking to recognize, are we in the proper timing? Because if you still have any of these deficits in your life, it's not time. It's not even time to fall in love. Because when you fall in love, you're now consumed with texting, Facebooking, FaceTiming, phone calling, and dating. And you no longer have the time to spend with Jesus Christ. Uh, last night I sat down, it was 10 o'clock at night. Somebody had told me about a good show to watch on snipers. And I like guns and snipers. So I sat down to watch this episode, this TV show. And uh, it was all right. My, my, I said, that's, eh. My wife said, you're not going to watch the next episode, you know, because you can do that. I said, no, it wasn't that good. And I don't have the time to give to that right now. I got too much to do for Jesus to get involved in a TV show that takes 42 minutes an episode. You have to be able to recognize spiritually where you're at in the season that you're in. And right now, I'm not in a season to give 42 minutes a day to a TV show. I got too much to do. And unfortunately, it, young people, they're just clueless. That's why you need accountability. That's why you need a coach. Did you know you go to college and you get what's called a student advisor? Because when you go to college, you are dumb. You don't know how to get your college degree, so you're given an advisor who will tell you this is the path to graduate in four years with the degree you declare you want. Nobody ever says he's, he's, he's controlling or cultish. And they'll go in and they'll submit to that student advisor and they'll take every class, whether they like it or not, and you know what? They'll pay 20 grand a semester to do it because the advisor knows how to get you to your goal. And if you flunk, you go back to the advisor and the advisor says, all right, that class is available again in two semesters. Let's rework your schedule. And nobody in the history of college has ever said that advisor is a cult leader trying to control my life. They always say, thank you so much. And they make appointments. I got to get with my advisor. I, I got to get out. I got, this is what I want. This is what I want. And the advisor says, this is the only way to do it. What must I do to obtain it? And yet you get into the kingdom. Well, you're just trying to control me. You don't know what you're even talking about. Go home. Go back, to, go back to little tots. You don't have a clue how this kingdom works. <laughs> are you defined by selfishness? A lot of folks are. All about you. If yes, it's not time for you to get married. Are you serving God faithfully in the kingdom in the local church? No. When will you start? I, I, I'm kind of to the place now. I'm not going to do weddings where the people don't serve God in the local church. I'm not going to have my hand on that. Would you be able to do more for Jesus if you were married? If you can answer yes, you may. These are, these are questions that help you pinpoint if you're in the proper season. If you're not mature enough, you don't need to fall in love because you don't have time to fall in love. You have to keep working on your walk with Jesus. Because those of you that are married know once you're married, your time starts getting split in half. Then every kid that comes along gets, gets fractured even more. You don't have the time to mature like you used to. Singlehood must be maximized and harnessed to grow you up as quickly as possible. And if you get married before the time, you may never grow up. And if you never grow up, you're going to have kids and they're going to be just as immature as you because you never took the singlehood time to grow up. 
This isn't a complete list of questions that could be asked, but it is a good start. Please be honest with yourself and don't try to make marriage happen before God's time. The stakes are too great. And as we point out, national statistics says that the church's divorce rate is equal to the world's divorce rate, which is a terrible shame. Biblical precedents. Let's look at something here. Two interesting biblical patterns emerge from the book of Genesis involving three of the first four marriages in the Bible. That's a pretty good statistic. The only marriage that's spoken of, the first four that we don't have any record of, was Abraham and Sarah. They come on the scene. They're already married. We don't know anything about how that worked in private. The first pattern is the season of marriage was perceived by the authority of the single person in each of these events. So their leadership recognized it's time. It's the first pattern that emerges. Second pattern is the man or authority sought out the woman. The man did, not vice versa. We got people, we got women proposing to men today. That's weird. We got women chasing men down today. Honey, you don't want a man you have to chase. Because you're going to be trying to, you're going to be, you're going to be trying to shoot pool with wet rope the rest of your marriage if you marry that guy. Trying to get him to lead the place. It's not going to, ha- it's not going to be happy. If you have to pursue him, ladies, don't. That means you're not worth it to him. And he doesn't know how to lead even if he did catch you. Amen. So our first marriage is Adam and Eve. God determined when Adam was ready to have a wife. Not Adam. God. God made Adam, trained Adam, and fellowshiped with Adam. God even gave Adam his first job. You should have a job before you get married. Then after a season of laboring and showing himself faithful to God, God determined Adam was ready for a wife and Eve was brought forth. So here we see that God, the authority, knew when it was ready, Adam was ready to take on the responsibility of a woman. Adam didn't say it. Adam didn't quit. He didn't quit the garden to go on the internet to find a, you know, mail-order bride from the Ukraine. He just kept serving God, saying, God, something's not right here. Every animal has a mate but me. What does that mean? What does one even look like? And then, of course, the joke is he presented the woman, and he said, whoa, man. And, you know, they were all naked, you know. Whoa, man. Uh Uh-huh. What's your name? How you do it? What you doing? (laughs) Second marriage we see is Isaac and Rebekah. Abraham could perceive when it was time for Isaac to find a wife. He sent his servant back to his home country in Mesopotamia to find a wife for him. Abraham could tell it's time. He's not going to marry one of the Canaanites. He's told his servant, which was probably Eleazar, because that was his most trusted servant, go back and find someone from my home country. Isaac did not go look for himself. The authority was involved. The authority could perceive it. It was the hand of God. It worked out. And from the moment that Isaac saw Rebekah, he loved her and he took her into his house. And the Bible says, and he was comforted after the death of his mother, Sarah. The providence of God led the servant to Rebekah. Our third marriage is Jacob and Leah and actually uh, Rachel as well. Isaac and Rebekah were very displeased and troubled by Jacob's twin, Esau, Remember, Jacob and Esau were twins. They were born the same day, minutes apart. He married two Hittite girls. 
So the Bible says these daughter-in-laws grieved and vexed the soul of mom and dad. And listen, when you get married, you got to make sure that who you're marrying doesn't terrify or torment your parents. Because you're not just marrying a woman, you're marrying family. Because you got Christmas together, Thanksgiving together, baby dedication together, birthdays together, vacations together. You got to be mindful of all this. Some folks get so selfish, they just go marry who they want to and don't listen to their parents. Amen. He married at 40. That's what the Bible says. Every American freaks out at that because there's so much sexual lust. But the Bible says he married at the age of 40. So Jacob hadn't married yet. He's 40 years old and have not, has not married yet. Because God determines when you're ready, not culture. God determines when you're ready, not culture. God determines when you're married, not culture. Now, back in the day, folks would get married a lot younger because they only lived to be 40. 15 and 16 years old, 18 years old, because the life expectancy was 40, 45 years. You got to get married, have kids, so that humanity can carry on. We're living to be 80, 90 years old, and we're not mature till we're 45 anymore. That's why we have 30-year-olds living at home, like a 20-year-old. We're 10 years behind schedule, and yet we're supposed to be the smartest generation ever. Smart doesn't mean mature. You got 14-year-olds that can hack the Pentagon. That's smart. But they can't turn in their homework. That's immature. You see the difference? Because her daughter-in-law's wearied Rebecca's life, and knowing that it was time for Jacob to marry, again, Isaac recognized it was time for Jacob to marry. Isaac commanded Jacob to go back to Mesopotamia to find a better quality of woman. He found Leah and Rachel. Of course, we know he's tricked by his uncle Laban. But we see here a pattern. The authority recognized. There was an oversight that could see the timing. It's right. It's right. It's right. And none of these men who did it right took it upon themselves to do it alone. Esau did and grieved mom and dad by marrying pagans. And it was not God. So we see there that there's this timing issue. Here we have confirmation of timing. Timing, timing. It's got to be the timing of God. It doesn't matter when you think you're going to be married. What does God say? Dr. Lester Sumrall got married at 31, thereabout. The time, the culture was 19 and 20. Back in the 1940s when he got married, American culture was you get married 19, 20, 21. And because of the will of God, he didn't get married till he was 31. He was too busy traveling the world doing what God called him to do. And uh, his, his mentor, uh, Dr. Howard Carter, didn't get married till his 50s. Now, I'm not saying that's the will of God for you, so please don't be terrified. But when you start trying to measure your life with your neighbor, you'll always mismeasure. God has a plan for every single person, and it's not the same as your neighbor. You have to be led by the Spirit of God. I once asked Pastor Vaughn, how long should I wait until I dated a girl that I liked? He said, depends on how lusty you are. And the purpose was, if I had a date, if I had a timeline, if it was six months, I wouldn't bother to be led by the Holy Spirit until that six-month deadline came, and then I would do it anyway. And that was a legalistic law. So what he was telling me is, you have to be led by the Spirit of God every step of the way. That one girl I was interested in, I never asked out, and within six months, she was in love with another guy, and they're married today with kids serving God. Not my wife. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And it took me another five or six years after her before I got married. Lust and impatience will cause you to make stupid decisions that will hurt the rest of your life. And once you're married, you're stuck unless you want to be a divorcee. 
The man must pursue. Here's another biblical thing we have to point out in light of our modern culture. Let me be very clear. It is not biblical at all for the woman to chase the man. And if she does, she'll be chasing him all the years of their marriage. And it will be a backwards, imbalanced marriage. It is not proper for the woman to chase the man. Men, if you are too spineless, gutless, fearful to chase the woman, you should be single the rest of your life. And maybe that loneliness will drive you to grow a backbone and an aggressiveness. Some, I mean, you have testosterone coursing through your veins. It should make you aggressive. You ought to be able to see that woman in God's timing and say, I, I want that and I'm going to pursue that by the Holy Ghost. That doesn't make you a caveman. We're not saying, you want me. Mm, thump, hit her over the head with your club, drag her and the club back home. No, that's poor taste. That, that's not even polite. That's just callous pride. Yeah. If my son-in-law show up with that, I'll show them guns and show them the door. And tell them, don't come back until you learn some humility and servitude, punk. Because that's all you are is a punk. Proverbs 18, 22. Whoso, whoso findeth a wife. So someone does the looking. Not the, who doesn't say whoso findeth a husband. I find a man. I got a man. No. Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing and obtain favor of the Lord. Because guys, you know you're going to need some favor. Proverbs 31. An excellent wife who can find. For her worth is far above jewels. Once again, it indicates the man is doing the looking, he's doing the pursuing. Now, this is going to sound very misogynistic and sexist and not 2017 America, but hoorah, I'm glad. I'm not proud of our culture. That means, ladies, you have to stay prepared, stay geared up, stay disciplined, stay ready. Stay before God praying, saying, Lord, I know you have someone for me. Bring him to me. Lord, I can't, I'm not pursuing. It's not biblical. I'm going to stay attending to the Lord, attending to my master, whoever that is, staying faithful to my job, staying faithful to my local church. You know where I am, Lord. I'm putting out the juju vibe, the love vibe as strong as I can. But honey, if you ever have to chase that guy you like, don't. Because you will not be happily married. You will be frustrated your entire life if you have to chase him to get him to marry you. Don't do it. And all this new hyphenated name stuff, blah. In my opinion, that's like Hillary Rodham Clinton. And now the new trend is to, to con, you know, make conjunctions or contractions out of the name. You know, my, my name is McMichael. My wife's maiden name is Thomas. So what they're doing now is McThomas. She proposes to him and now we're going to be McThomas because my name's just as equally as important as yours. No, it's not. You become one flesh the head of the household is the husband. You know, when I got born again, it didn't become Chris McMichael, born again, saint sinner. We're not hyphenated. I'm born again. I'm a child of God. Child of God, child of devil. No, there's no hyphenation there. That's a familiar pride. That's a family pride. No, you leave fa father and mother and you cleave to your spouse and you start a new family. You don't have covenant with mommy or daddy or their last name. And you ought to be proud to take on his name because that's biblical. It's proper. And if you're not proud, you got too much feminism and lesbianism coursing through your veins, you should repent. Even schoolgirls, they meet a boy and they practice writing their name with his last name a thousand times. <laughs> you notice that even Hollywood does it. When they get two people together, they call them Benifer or Bradifer or Brangelina. And that's what the church is doing because the church is carnal. 
Both of these verses indicate that it's the man's job to look for the woman. Ladies, if the man you have an eye for lacks the gumption or drive to pursue you, that may be a red flag. You don't want the rest of your marriage to be defined by you getting him to do something. If you have to get him interested in you, you'll have to get him to do something to keep the house together. You don't want that responsibility. You want to be married to a motivated man, a driven man, a man that can make it happen. 1 Corinthians 11, 9, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. Every feminist in the church needs to read that verse and put it on lipstick on their mirror and put it on the little index card in the car. The woman was created for the man. She was custom built to be his helper. The woman was created for the man. Therefore, you must go and find the woman that God created to help you fulfill your calling in Christ. She's designed to be the help me. You need to plow straight fields in the garden of God. If you're not plowing, you don't need a helper. Amen. At some point, the pursuit must begin and intentions must be declared. So we have to move on to that. And again, there's so much I could say about that. And I feel like our curriculum is inadequate in that degree, but we can only cover so much at a time. So let's say you feel good about it. Your heart's right. You've got to begin to pursue uh, let's assume you have controlled your love and you haven't let love pull you too far out, out of the will of God and you've searched out any and all red flags and warning lights you could possibly find and having discerned there are no unequal yokes in this potential future covenant, we finally move on to the pursuit of the woman or if you're the woman, waiting to be one. You have to want to be one, ladies. You play hard to get, that's fun, but don't be impossible to get. If you're in, hard to get is different than impossible to get. Hard to get makes the man want you a little bit more, but you've got to measure that thing. And if you're impossible to get, he'll just quit and he'll find somebody else. When we move on to, account, uh, to pursuit, we must involve accountability and oversight. So keeping in mind that marriage, and more specifically who you marry, is the second biggest decision of your life. The first decision being what you do with Jesus, obviously. It is only wisdom to surround yourself with accountability partners and submit to spiritual oversight through this season and process. So many Christians get married alone. They court alone. They date alone. They don't have any accountability. They don't have any oversight. We've all seen examples of of folks dating somebody and their best friends are like, sweetie, I don't feel good about this guy. This this guy is a scuzzball. This guy is slimy. They won't even listen to their best friend give a good judgment about the new guy they're dating. They don't even want to listen to their sister in Christ or their natural sister say, Honey, you know, every time you date, you you withdraw from family. That's not right. What's this guy going to do? The church does this as well, unfortunately. They just date on their own. They isolate. They withdraw rather than submitting even more because this is the second biggest decision of your life. You didn't get born again alone. You should not marry alone. You didn't hear the gospel alone. A great workforce was used to get you the gospel and then lead you to the altar, then lead you in prayer. Even if it was born again on a pamphlet, a great workforce went into that pamphlet. You didn't get born again alone. You should not date, court, and marry alone. There should be oversight and help from the body of Christ. Look at Proverbs eleven fourteen: Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs twenty eighteen in the New Living Translation says, Plan succeed through good counsel. Don't go to war without wise advice. Proverbs 24, 6, For by wise counsel you shall make your war, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. 
Proverbs 24, 6 in the New Living Translation says, So don't go to war without wise guidance. Victory depends on having many advisors. I like that version. Victory depends on having many wise advisors. Not many advisors, wise advisors. You don't just go cherry pick them. They got to be wise advisors. So this is so critical. The more you date, the more you fall in love, the more you need to have people around you. Wise counsel will help you see other possible red lights or warning signs you may not have seen or you may have missed. You know, when you date, it's two people face to face hiding all their dirt. When you text and Facebook, it's even worse. Facebook is a total facade anyway. It's the most highly marketed you you could ever produce with the help of filters and 16,000 pictures so you can pick the right one. And then you only Facebook the stuff you know will make your friends jealous. Most of what's put on Facebook is put on Facebook with the wrong heart and motive anyway. It's all about competition, one-upmanship, and, and provoking your friends to wicked jealousy. It's such a facade. You need to make sure you surround yourself with folks that can judge you from every angle so that you make this decision wisely. Be willing to be honest with, about what you would call a deal-breaker. When dealing with the affairs of the heart and love, you must surround yourself with someone you can trust more than yourself. Someone who loves you and will uh, help you judge the blossoming relationship. That just makes sense. Uh, I think every one of us at some point maybe was interested in, in a, someone of the opposite sex and our friends didn't feel good about it or they didn't like it or when we broke up they said, I just never felt good about that. Why didn't you say something? That's why we surround ourselves with godly counsel. Look at Hebrews 13, 17, New Living Translation. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. So this verse says that there's spiritual leaders in your life that you should obey and listen to. Now, we don't tell you what to eat, what to drink, but we can say, honey, I don't feel good about this young man. I don't feel good about this young girl. Something's not right here. Wise counsel. So we talked about spiritual accountability or wise counsel and then spiritual leadership. So I have two categories there as I see it. Wise counsel can be your best friend who loves you and cannot like a guy, and you should listen to that. Could be a sister, a brother, could be a coworker. Uh, you'd be amazed when you're out of the will of God how many folks can tell. Sometimes even a pagan can tell you're out of the will of God because your countenance falls, and they're not used to seeing you without God. Wise counsel can come from parents, disciples, mentors, elders, even friends. The key is to be open to hearing what others can see. And that's so hard when you're in love because I hear the excuse, well, you just don't know them like I do. Yeah, I don't want to because they have snowballed you. Spiritual leadership should be part of wise counsel, but that is also in addition to wise counsel. Spiritual leaders are pastors, elders, ministers. They have a supernatural gift from God to watch over your soul and to watch over the souls of their congregation, much like a shepherd can see over the sheep of his flock. These individuals don't have to live with the person you're hoping to marry. And that's why these folks can be trusted. We don't have to marry them. We don't have to go home with them. We can just see the problems. So you ought to at least be open to hearing the problems people can see. And don't clog your ears to say, nah, 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 you're, you're just jealous. You just, yeah, you just don't want me to be happy. That's another lame one. You just don't want me to be happy. Sweetie, you were unhappy before you met them. You're looking for happiness here. It's not going to be found here. Their only concern is what's best for you. To discredit their genuine concerns is to pursue pain 
and potential heartache. It's to pursue pain or court pain and potential heartache. So don't discredit. When you're in love, don't, don't discredit accountability's concerns. Be willing to listen. Be willing to troubleshoot any potential loophole. Uh, just like anybody who has counsel says, tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me what I can't see. Be the mirror that shows me my backside. Be, be my rear guard. Show me what I can't see. Every human being has blind spots. And you want to make sure you fill them every way possible. Gertie has a new Honda. And the right driver, the, the passenger side rearview mirror has a camera now. So when you turn on the blinker, it actually kicks onto the center monitor. And you see what the camera can see to fill in that blind spot. Which is pretty cool. Because even with rear view mirrors or side view mirrors, you still have blind spots. Years ago, back in the 90s, you could buy that radio or auto shack or wherever, those giant mirrors that took up the entire top of the dash. So, and everyone was angled differently. I mean, you almost had a 180-degree view just by looking up at that thing. You still have blind spots, and that's why you need friends. So never isolate yourself when you're in love. Bad things will happen. I can always tell when it's not God because people start to isolate themselves when they fall in love. That is never God. If it is the will of God, you can have as many people around you and they'll all bear witness. So let's procedural review real quick. The purpose behind this entire teaching is to develop and present a safe and honorable pattern. That's what we're trying to do here is present a pattern for modern Christians to follow as they cautiously journey down the tricky road of love and marriage. Here's a loose outline of how a God-honoring courtship might evolve. Please don't be legalistic with any of this. This is a loose outline and pattern. You know, it's like the, bump, uh, the bumpers in Bowling Alley. They're there. If you don't need them, great. But, you know, if you need them, then bump into them and go down the center. Number one, after prayer and discipleship and fruitful growth, a Christian single person honestly evaluates their life and determines they are mature enough to begin entertaining the idea of marriage. It is also determined that the season is in God's timing. So that's your first step. You recognize you're mature enough. You perceive it's God's timing. And now you finally let your mind begin to drift that direction. Number two, for the man, earnest prayer begins for the woman God has for him. This is usually coupled with the sudden keen awareness of available godly women. All of a sudden, your radar kicks on and it's like, whoa. A lot of little pretty girls around here. They seem to love God. And it's almost like sonar. Boop. Boop. Boop, boop. Oh, oh. Ah. And you begin to hone in on it. That's the man's job. Honey, as hard as it's going to be for you if you're a female, you have to sit there and be ready. Attending unto the Lord. If you pursue, you're out of the will of God, ladies. It's not God. That's feminism. Number three, eventually the man is drawn to an available godly woman and acts on that attraction by beginning a friendship or becoming closer friends. Maybe you're already friends. This is a stage where accountability and oversight needs to begin. This is where you start talking to your mom and dad. You start talking to a disciple or a mentor, an elder, a leader, a pastor, and you submit this thing so you can be careful. When we go caving, even though we're, we're trained, uh, we're borderline experts it, with the guys I run with, we still put a call in and a call out. We still say, we put to the caving community, we're going to this cave, we're dropping these three pits. Uh, we hope to be out by four o'clock. If you don't hear from us by eight, you need to come. And this is, this is the caving community that, that leads tours. That these, I mean, we're good. 
I'm not the best in the region, but there's only 11 vertical cavers in the region, and I'm one of them. And, and we've had camera crews come and use some of our friends to go and do stuff for Discovery Channel. Even as good as we are, we still have accountability for doing something we've done hundreds of times. That's just part of it. It's oversight. This is a stage where accountability and oversight needs to begin. It's also where red flags must be further searched out. Because when you involve accountability and oversight, they're going to see things you can't see. And they're going to bring concerns to you. Don't get offended. Address them. Number four, as the two qualified single Christians begin to reciprocate interest in each other, courtship begins. If she's not interested, man, you you either got to press into God or leave her alone. Otherwise, you're a stalker. And that can be weird. And you can't, I believe I receive, I believe I receive. And if she believes she's going to call the police, back off. Leave her alone. She's not interested. I mean, you got to be a smarter guy than that. You can tell when she's just being coy and when she's being weird and when you're being weird. You got to be able to recognize this when you've overstepped boundaries. So we assume that they're reciprocating interest in each other. This is a season where intentions are declared not just to each other, but also to families, church, friends. Courtship is more than dating, but it's not engagement. Courtship declares, quote, we like each other, we're attracted to each other, and we want to see if marriage is the will of God for our lives. The heart behind courtship is to honorably declare exclusivity in a dating relationship that is seeking the will of God concerning marriage. So it's not dating, because you're not going to just go on a date next week with a third person or a fourth person. We're exclusive, we're saying. But we're walking this thing out because we believe marriage may be in the cards, but we're not sure. But we want to submit this. We want everybody to know we're in the will of God. We're pursuing the final will of God. Please watch over us. And this is an honorable thing to do. The church has had to develop this in the last 30 years because the American culture got away from this and went to just dating anything that had two legs and a pulse. Finally, after courtship, the next stage is engagement. This will be covered in our next lesson. And so we'll talk about the things of engagement, what that looks like. If between now and next week you have any questions, please email them to me and I can incorporate that into our lesson because we want to try to cover this as best we can. This is certainly something we're having to rapidly evolve because culture is getting so worse, so flippant. People are meeting and marrying in six weeks. That's insane. People are meeting and marrying in four days. That's insane. So we're going to talk about some of these issues. Find the proper timing, find some accountability, and get to pursuing God's speed, because you're going to need it. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Help our young folks find the will of God for their life. Find that perfect mate that you've ordained for them, the one that can help them do more for you. Father, may every person that listens to these lessons in the future stay in the perfect center of your will and find some accountability and spiritual oversight. In Jesus' name, amen.